Hey everyone, and welcome to the 14th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. I hope you enjoy the new intro music. Um, it's actually my one of my best friend's songs. If you want to look him up on Spotify, Apple Music, I think he's on SoundCloud as well. Um, Jackson Blue, it's his, it's his song Friday Freestyle. Um, he's a pretty talented guy, so go check it out. But today we're going to have my friend Michael Meharry on to talk about the economy, what he believes is to come of all of this. He believes that the economy will not be so great after the pandemic and once we open up the economy. Um, little preview, he actually thinks that stagflation is possible. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a dismal topic, but um, he does have some more positive stuff and uh, he's, we're going to talk a little bit about his religion as well later towards the end of the podcast and then uh, and how he believes we should treat each other during all of this. Mike is the National Communications Director for the 10th Amendment Center, the managing editor of the Shift Gold website, and he hosts his own podcast, Thoughts from Meharry Head, as well as the Friday Gold Wrap podcast and It's Your Dime interview series for Shift Gold. He is also the author of the Constitution Owner's Manual. Um, if you wanna check out my previous interview with him, go to my second interview. I, I talked to him about that book as well as just some constitutional issues. Uh, we also talked about religion, whether or not it's compatible with libertarianism, and we talked a little bit about gold. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Mike is a great guy and a great friend. Here's Mike. Thanks for calling me again. Last time we talked, it was after your book was released, and um, we talked a little bit about inflation and stuff like that afterwards, and now with the coronavirus and the situation, things are kind of becoming a reality. Um, you know, 10% of the labor force filed for unemployment last week, but the Dow is up. Um, what What is your read on that? Isn't that like bizarro world? Yeah. Uh, it, it tells you that the stock market has become completely detached from any kind of economic reality. Um, we're in a position now where we have, like you said, 10% is probably a lot more than that, actually. I mean, that just reflects people who have filed for unemployment. So, But we'll, we'll just take that number. 10% of the entire U.S. workforce laid off in a three-week period. Uh, we have... Uh, virtual shutdown of the entire economy. Nobody's working. Uh, things aren't getting produced. And yet we're seeing uh, the stock market rebound. And it's almost as if people think that, you know, Donald Trump's going to snap his fingers and we're going to wake up and the economy's just going to start right back up where it left off, which is right. absurd. Um, the reason that the stock market is going up clearly can't be because of the economy. It can't be because people all of a sudden think, oh, corporations are going to make big profits next year. Uh, so there has to be a different reason. And it's purely 100% driven by stimulus, both uh, government stimulus coming from the huge uh, package, $2 trillion plus that the Congress passed, and then also uh, trillions upon trillions of dollars that the Federal Reserve is effectively creating out of thin air and injecting into the economy. Mm -hmm. So we've seen the money supply go up $800 billion in just two weeks. Yeah. And that is the definition of inflation. We, we kind of think of inflation because of the way it's talked about in uh, the media as in 
increasing prices, the real definition of inflation is actually an increase in the money supply. So we have inflation now. The question is, where will that inflation show up? And it's initially showing up in the stock market. But I think with the amount of money that's being pumped into the system in response to this coronavirus, I think it's only a matter of time before we start seeing price inflation uh, and possibly even hyperinflation. Peter Schiff, who's kind of, I work for his gold company, and Peter has said that hyperinflation has gone from being the worst case scenario to the most likely scenario. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to believe he's right on that. So I think people need to be aware and prepared that we could see rapidly rising prices in a uh, recessionary period. And, and that's the definition of that, or the word they use for that is stagflation. And that's what we saw in the 1970s, where you have uh, shrinking economic growth and increasing inflation, which is, uh, in the Keynesian world, it's not supposed to be a thing, but it certainly is. Right. And is there any indication this this early where we're likely to see that, the rise in prices? Like, are they going to be in um, consumer products, real estate? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, the the Federal Reserve was managed managed to get by with this process in 2008, primarily because everybody thought that there was an exit strategy. Everybody believed in 2008 that this was an, a temporary thing. It was an emergency measure. We're going to increase the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. We're going to pump all of this uh, liquidity into the financial system. And then once the emergency has passed, we'll reverse that. You know, we'll shrink the balance sheet, we'll raise interest rates. And they never did have an exit strategy. So, you know, it was a decade later that the Fed finally started trying to increase uh, interest rates a little bit. It was in 2018 when they actually started trying to shrink that balance sheet. And what happened at the end of 2018, the stock market tanked. And uh, Jerome Powell last year, he was already had already pivoted toward emergency-like monetary policy before coronavirus. I mean, we had three rate cuts in 2019. We already had some some small quantitative easing programs, which is money printing. So that was already happening before coronavirus. And you know, I tell people all the time, everybody's paying attention to coronavirus. They think that's the cause that once coronavirus goes away, everything will be fine. Coronavirus is a pin that's pricked a bubble. The bubble was created by the Federal Reserve in the monetary policy, and the coronavirus has pricked that, and now the uh, the air is coming out of it. And this is the analogy I came up with. I think this is pretty good. The economy right now is like a bicycle tire, and you've got a guy that's got a pump hooked up to that tire, and he's you know like a hand pump, and he's pumping that thing for all it's worth. And right now he's keeping the air in the tire, even though it's leaking out the hole. But as soon as he stops pumping, then the tire is going to deflate. And he can't keep pumping forever. That's where we are. The, the pumper is the Federal Reserve and the federal government. As soon as the stimulus stops, everything is going to collapse. If they don't stop the stimulus, at some point you're going to see, uh, see inflation. And, and I think this time you're going to see price inflation because I think people are at some point have to realize, you know, there's no exit strategy here. And all of these dollars are going to be floating around in the economy. People aren't going to want to buy bonds and stocks it's going to go into price inflation that's that's my prediction i could be wrong and you know i've been wrong before but that's that seems like the most likely scenario if you look at the economic dynamics that are in place right yeah so it, it's pretty interesting i'm i'm studying i'm in the journalism department at my university and something that i just can't stand is this uh this 
almost like willingness to just trust anyone with a suit on um, with any right. journalism, you know, like it, as soon, it's kind of like this pure post hoc analysis of the economy. As soon as it crashed, it was like, oh, because of the coronavirus or oh, because, right. you know, someone said this, but no one was questioning why we were lowering interest rates last summer. Right. And it's, it's just absurd. But um, you have, you have another article about um, we, we actually just, our debt hit 24 trillion last week. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And I also know you, you mentioned that uh, our deficits have kind of been showing that we've been in a recession long before the coronavirus. But a lot of people, a lot of people think that deficits aren't a problem. So can you kind of right. deal with both of those things? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we just hit $24 trillion as the uh, the official national debt. And of course, that does not count unfunded uh, liabilities such as Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. That's just the amount of outstanding debt in terms of bonds. So that's the money that that has been borrowed already. It doesn't even reflect the money that will have to be borrowed in the future. So uh, just to put that into context, we hit $23 trillion just back in November. And uh, prior to that, we hit, I think it was $22 trillion in February of 2018. So, you know, the federal government was already putting on massive levels of debt even before the coronavirus. And as I mentioned in, in one of those articles, typically you see deficits shrink during an economic expansion because you have more economic activity that means more tax revenue coming in that means more uh, you know more piece bigger pie so that means more pie going to the government so generally speaking in a good economic time you should should see shrinking budget deficits we were actually seeing the exact opposite over the last two years, despite the fact that Donald Trump was running around saying, oh, we have the greatest economy in the history of the world. Uh, we had both monetary policy from the Fed and stimulus spending from the federal government that looked like we were in the midst of a, of a recession. Uh, people, yeah, people like to say that the deficits don't matter and, and they say, well, you know, we've run up $23 trillion and nothing bad's happened yet. Uh, I would argue that just because, you know, nothing bad has happened doesn't mean nothing bad. Well, it's like playing Jenga, you know, uh, you take the piece out and you, you're not going to say, well, this tower is never going to fall because it hasn't fallen yet. Well, you know, you just take enough pieces out of the Jenga tower and it's definitely going to fall. That's physics and uh, economics has laws and those things will eventually catch up. There's, there's some specific things that are very problematic about the debt. The first being that debt retards economic growth. And there's this myth in uh, kind of the Republican conservative right wing world that we can just cut taxes and we'll grow our way out of the debt. And the problem is the debt actually retards economic growth. And this is something that's been demonstrated through economic analysis through a number of studies. We've seen it uh, vividly in Europe with the massive amounts of debt they're carrying there and the, uh, the shrinking of their economic growth, they were actually in, in worse shape than the United States was before coronavirus. Um, they say that once the, uh, the debt to GDP ratio gets above about 90%, you'll start seeing about a 30% reduction in economic growth. Before the coronavirus, we were already at 106% of a debt to GDP ratio. And you know, that's who, who knows where that's going to go over here in the next several months. Right. So I think you can, you can look for 
a, a de decrease in economic growth simply because of the debt. It siphons resources away from things that actually grow the economy. The second big problem is the impact on the bond markets. Uh, all of this money has to be borrowed. When it's borrowed, that means that the, or either that or the government has to raise taxes and you know, no politician wants to raise taxes. So it's all borrowed. Yeah. And so that means that the government goes out and it sells bonds out in the open market and uh, the more bonds that are supplied, uh, you know, supply and demand laws will tell you that the price of those bonds will drop. And when the prices of bonds drop, interest rates increase. Uh, interest rates and bond prices are inversely cor correlated. So what happens is there is when, when you have a debt <clears throat> and you're borrowing a lot of money, there is a natural uh, pushing up of interest rates in order to entice people to buy these these bonds. The Federal Reserve and the government are desperately trying to keep that low because we're in a world of debt. Uh, we have trillions of dollars, not only in government debt, but we also have trillions of dollars in consumer debt and trillions of dollars in corporate debt. Obviously, when you have a lot of debt, interest rates rising are bad. That's part of the reason that you see the Federal Reserve doing what it's doing. It's buying all of these bonds. It's creating an artificial demand, trying to push bond prices up, keep interest rates low in order to keep this house of cards intact. At some point, all of this is going to break down. It's like that Jenga tower. At some point, it's going to topple. And when it does, interest rates are going to rise. All of these people that are in all of this debt are going to not be able to pay their debt anymore. You're going to see massive dislocations in the economy. And with all of that money that's out there in the uh, in the world, what they'll try to do is they'll try to print more money to fix the problem. And again, you're looking at an inflation scenario. So there's basically two ways we could go here. We could either have hyperinflation because the Fed just keeps trying to pump money into the system to keep air in the bubble, or we're going to have to go through the pain of a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of businesses failing, a lot of unemployment, all of these things that are really the, the bitter medicine that you have to take to get the economy back on solid footing again. But I don't think there's the political will to actually take that bitter medicine. And, and I think the more likely uh, scenario is we'll see more intervention in the economy by the government and the Federal Reserve and, and eventually we'll it will end with the, uh, you know, the crash of the dollar and, and all the things that go with that. Right. Um, and actually, so you, you mentioned that you thought that it in 2018, it hit 22 trillion. I actually remember this vividly. I was in I was in class and um, my civics teacher, whenever he thought that we were in a good mood, he would put up the world debt clock. And <laughs> I remember it hit 20 trillion. And um, yeah, so that was in 2018. And Trump has seen it go from 20 trillion to 24 trillion now. So yeah. it's it's pretty crazy. But um, can you talk a little bit about what this means for gold? Yeah, I think it's good for gold. Um, and, you know, OK, I'm going to preface this by telling everybody I am not a, an investing guru. I have no financial license of any, any type. So anything I say is not a recommendation. Uh, it's just my opinion. And you can take that for what it's worth. <laughs> but that said, historically, Anytime you have an environment where there's a lot of inflation, anytime you have an environment where the Federal Reserve is printing a lot of money, that has been good for the price of gold. Uh, if you go back and look at 2008, uh, what happened as the stock market initially started to fall in 08, gold actually dropped. It dropped about 26% uh, from, I think it was March of 2008 through the end of that year. Once 
the Federal Reserve started doing the quantitative easing programs, the the effective money printing, uh, gold went up well over 100 percent uh, over the next three years. Silver it did even better, actually. Silver went up like 400 and some percent. Um, so historically, that's what happens. Historically, gold is an inflation hedge, and it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, gold, if you price it in dollars, when you have more dollars out there and the same amount of gold, then it takes you know, more dollars to buy an ounce of gold. It's just like any other commodity. Um, I think that's kind of the way people should be thinking in terms of what do I do uh, to protect myself financially through this time. Think about things that are going to rise in price if you have uh, increasing levels of dollars. And that's primarily commodities. So things like oil, things like copper, things like farm goods, all of those things normally do well in an inflationary environment. Uh, And those are the kinds of things that I think a lot of people should be looking at in terms of protecting their money. I would not be in the stock market right now. I think we've got further to fall and, um, or at least not the U.S. stock market. And I would be very wary of anything that's that's dollar denominated, you know, holding holding a bunch of cash or holding, uh, you know, a bonds and those types of things. Right. Again, this is just my opinion and, and uh, you know, take take it for what it's worth. If you're really interested in investing, I highly recommend talking to a, a uh, you know, somebody that's certified in investment advice. Right. So I, I've been having this conversation with my grandfather who is – kind of coming to terms with all of this stuff and he's he's convinced gold is the way and something that we talked about was that in so in 1974 when when he bought his first house gold was at um 183 dollars and he bought his house for thirty four thousand dollars um if he would have bought gold for that same price he would have been able to buy the house and some more furniture and stuff like that but now if he never would have bought into gold the price of the house actually went up from thirty-four thousand dollars to one hundred seventy-eight thousand seven hundred, or yeah, seven hundred forty dollars. So, the the amount that gold has offset the loss in the dollar and inflation kind of puts it in perspective what um, gold actually does when when the dollar yeah. the purchasing power goes down. One of the things that I've seen that that I think is a good example that people can easily wrap their head around is. Uh, if you go back to um, basically the 1970s uh, the and look at the price of a suit, an ounce of gold at that time would buy a really nice suit. You know, we're talking like Italian high-end suit. Mm-hmm. Today, an ounce of gold will buy that same suit. Uh, so, you know, people will say, well, gold isn't a great way to make money. It, it's true. It's not like the stock market. It's not like the, uh, you know, it's going to compound. What gold actually does is it preserves your wealth. Right. Um, so that's why it's, it's, to me, it's a long-term investment. It's a way to protect your cash. If you're saving cash uh, and, and you want to preserve that cash as value, you put it in gold. If you're trying to earn money over time, then you do have to invest in more risky assets such as stocks and things like that and then it gets into you know what kind of stocks do you want to invest in and, and that gets way out of my wheelhouse real quick but yeah. but gold is the ultimate safe haven and ultimately gold is the original form of money mm. and um you know i think it became money 
through the free market for a reason because it has all of the qualities that that make for good money. And I think uh, it's always going to be money. And no matter what happens to the fiat currency that you happen to be operating under, you're always going to be able to go back to gold and silver. That's why I also hold a lot of silver personally because I think uh, it's it's going to be the best thing in you know if we ever got to the point where you have to barter where you have a Venezuela type situation where your your money is virtually worthless. If you have silver, you're still going to retain that purchasing power. So, right. yeah. And now kind of to pivot and talk about something else. You you and I are both Christians and we've been mm-hmm. we've been looking at situations all over the United States. I I see that you posted some stuff through the 10th Amendment Center um involving security and stuff like that. But over the weekend, we saw um we saw some churchgoers get their license scanned. We saw, I think, nails were put in the road to stop people from driving. Um, and there, there have been a, a bunch of security concerns. Can you, can you talk a little bit about um, what we've been seeing across the country and what you think is going to come of all of it? Yeah, well, I think ultimately what we're seeing come out of it is a we, – we're seeing the state – exposed for what it is it's a bunch of people with guns uh mandating what we do and don't do and we can have the debate as to whether or not it was wise to gather and i don't even want to get into that bait i'm not i'm not a virologist or an expert in infectious diseases i have my opinions uh personally i think the whole thing has been way overblown in terms of the uh the actions that have been taken on the other hand, I do think that there are certain segments of the population that it's very wise for them to uh, to shield themselves from exposure to this virus. You know, uh, for instance, I, I'm concerned about my mom because she's you know she's a cancer patient and she's older, so mm-hmm. she would be somebody that would be more vulnerable. I think it's very wise for her to stay away. Other people, maybe not so much. But that really isn't the the overriding point. To me, it's the point that you had people that that followed their own conscience, made the decision that they wanted to go attend church. And then you've got police officers, uh, you know, putting notices on and basically saying, you're not going to be under house arrest because you dare get together. And I think that is a dangerous precedent. And it, it goes to show just how quickly government power can escalate. And all of these things that, that I've been railing about for a decade, you know, the increasing surveillance state and all of these things. And people say, well, Mike, you don't need to worry about that if you have nothing to fear. You know, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. And, uh, and you know, people would say that about something like license plate scanners. Well, there you go. You know, all of a sudden <laughs> people going to church have something to hide. And uh, this could easily be applied to anybody. And I said, well, I don't want to go to church. Well, whatever it is, you know, uh, how long is it before they set up the license plate scanners at the gun store? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if, if you uh, uh, people on the left already know how surveillance has been used, it's been used on Black Lives Matter, it's been used on the anti-war movement. So all of these things that get put in place are available when the emergency comes and then it becomes normalized. And as uh, economist Bob Higgs wrote in his, his wonderful book, Crisis and Leviathan, the powers never go back down to what they were before. Every time there's a crisis government power ratchets up and once the crisis is over it might come down a little bit but it never gets back down to the level that it was before so every emergency you get a little higher and a little higher and you know at some point you wake up and you're living in a dystopian uh, uh, 
uh, novel that you don't want to be living in. So, um, you know, I, I think this this raises a lot of challenges. And uh, as a Christian, it certainly raises a lot of uh, conflicting feelings in me because I do believe that we have an obligation to our neighbor mm-hmm. um, and that we should be taking steps to protect our neighbor. And I was very much of the opinion that churches shouldn't meet because I, I was – uh, pretty convinced that the social distancing was a good thing. I'm not so convinced of that now with what I've learned, neither here nor there. I think we do have to always consider our responsibility to to our uh, our fellow man and woman. Right. But um, when it gets to the point that you have people with guns enforcing their will, that becomes very dangerous. And even if you think, well, that is what should be enforced right now, it's only one more step until they're enforcing something that you don't think should be enforced. And when you open the door to that power, you can never close it again. So today it's for coronavirus. You know, tomorrow it's because Christians are dangerous. And we've already set the precedent that we can lock down a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the, the threat to liberty is more dangerous than the threat that the particular virus poses. Yeah. And is it true that um, the people who got their licenses scanned, that's going to a, all their license plates are now in a national database? Yes, absolutely. Um, virtually any data that gets gathered up by any law enforcement agency ultimately ends up in a federal database. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, with license plate information, we, we know for a fact that the DEA has a national license plate um, repository or database, and that database is fed almost exclusively from state and local law enforcement. It's not the federal agents that are gathering the license plate. It's your local cops that are doing it. And that information gets fed into these databases. I'm sure that happens with every bit of electronic data that is gathered, whether it be cell phone data or computer data or video data. All of this stuff is fed into these systems. Uh, there's a thing that was developed after 9-11 called the Information Sharing Environment, ISE for short. And part of that is what are known as fusion centers. Every state has a number of these fusion centers, and they're basically, uh, a, um, I guess, an agency or a bureau where state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies pool information, collect information, and then share it throughout the United States. So uh, this was created after uh, after 9-11, and it goes to show, you know, going back to Robert Higgs's ratchet effect, after 9-11, everybody was in a panic. Everybody was worried about terrorism. We passed the Patriot Act. Here we are two decades later. We still have the Patriot Act. The federal government is still spying on everybody in the world, and this infrastructure that was built uh, at that time is now being used to track everybody for coronavirus. Right. And so we're setting new precedents, and there's going to be new, uh, you know, expansions of government that will happen. And you know, then the next crisis that'll come along, and then they'll roll that out and, and up the ante some more. So I think I think people should be very aware. Even if you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I'm worried about this pandemic and I really think that we need to take steps, you always have to balance things. You know, every every decision is a cost-benefit analysis. And I think people are not taking enough time to consider the ramifications of this expansion of government and what it could mean uh, going forward. If you care anything at all about your privacy, about your liberty, about, uh, you know, the concept of quote-unquote limited government, 
uh, the rule of law. I mean, for goodness sake, we have the president of the United States claiming that the president has total authority. Right. You know, and I know some people that are okay with that because they like Donald Trump. Well, are they going to like it when Joe Biden's president? Probably not. And then all of a sudden, the people that are all throwing a fit because, oh my gosh, Trump's a tyrant. You know, when their guy's in office, they'll be like, oh, this is great. You know, so you have to consider that whatever power you give up today is going to be in the hands of somebody else tomorrow. And that somebody else may be somebody that's not good. Right. So that's, that's, that's pretty much my spiel on that is just to consider, you know, consider the costs and benefits. And I don't think enough people are doing that because quite frankly, a lot of people are scared. And when you are acting out of fear, you make irrational and bad decisions. And so we should try to roll the fear back and try to look at things as objectively as we can. Right. Um, so I, I also did hear about you, you were talking about, um, I think it was called geofencing in Utah. What, mm -hmm. How do they collect the data there? Do they actually track every single cell phone that enters the state? And yep. <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's actually very easy to do. Um, it, it can be do th done through existing cell phone towers, or it can even be done through mobile devices that are known as cell site simulators, or uh, commonly known as Stingray devices. And these devices will lock on to every cell phone uh, in a given area, and police have access to the location of that phone. And uh, depending on how the machine is set up, they can actually uh, even access the data and listen in on phone calls that are made on a given phone that's been that's been locked in and so all they have to do you know all you have to do is set up a cell site simulator uh, on the border next to the interstate and every phone that enters that that area that geofence so to speak um is going to be tracked and and pinpointed and located and recorded uh, and then of course it can also be done after the fact uh through google you know your google collects all of these analytics all of the cell cell phone companies collect all of this information. If your phone is on, it is tracking where you are. If your phone is off, it probably is still tracking where you are. Uh, really, the only way you can keep from being tracked completely is to take the battery out of the phone. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and, and so this is another thing, you know, that, that what is this going to lead to down the road? Because you can say, well, you know, it's there they're anonymizing the data and nobody knows who the individual is. But it doesn't take much to make anonymous data uh, specific to a person. Mm -hmm. And I've actually seen where you can take two data points that are completely uh, anonymous and determine who that person is. Mm -hmm. It's not hard to do. So um, New York actually filed a, a bill uh, for consideration just a couple of days ago that would require, uh, actually would it would uh, ban these geofencing warrants and, and prohibit this mass collection of data and you know that, that allows police officers to basically do a fishing expedition because what they do and this is actually happening before coronavirus is they'll you know say um let's say there there was a mugging uh, and the mugging was on main street so they'll actually take that point of the mugging draw a big circle around it and then go to a data provider and get the uh, the location of every cell phone that was within that circle through a given period of time. And so then that lets them kind of go through and say, okay, this person might be suspicious because they're connected to whatever. Right. And it allows them basically to do warrantless searches uh, simply by, uh, act, you know, you become a suspect simply because you were walking through a given area at a given time. It's very invasive and, and again, very dangerous if you care anything at all about civil liberties. Yeah. Um, so now just to kind of pivot again, you, you were talking so on your Godarchy podcast, you talked a little bit about um, 
what you believe a free society would do to kind of alleviate all these problems. Uh, can you kind of talk a little bit about that? I know you said that you don't have all, all the solutions, but I think, I think there are some lessons to be learned here. Yeah, you know, like I, I said in the pot in that podcast, I think to me that's a struggle, and you know, to some degree, I have realized that you know political philosophies break down, and I think libertarianism and, and more generally speaking, more more specifically speaking, uh, you know, kind of libertarian anarchism, which is kind of where where I fall, you know, the idea that the state is illegitimate. I believe that those are very solid philosophical frameworks that that would help order a society in a much better way than what the way it's ordered today. Today, society is ordered on violence, force, and coercion. Uh, that's not a good way to order society. You know, I'm going to hit you if you don't do what I want. I don't think anybody actually recognizes that as a valid ethical position, and yet that's the entire basis of our society. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel very strongly that that libertarianism, libertarian anarchism provides a very good political framework that we could create a better, more prosperous, more peaceful society. That said, even it breaks down. And even within that framework, there are certain questions that, that arise. Uh, you know, how do you deal with a pandemic? How do you deal with the situation where um, I could be exposed to a disease and not know it? And by virtue of going to the grocery store, I could expose some uh, innocent person. That's a tricky question, you know, and, and, and I think ultimately in order to punish somebody, you need to be able to establish cause. Uh, so, you know, if, if you could establish that I had this disease or I was exposed to this disease and I knowingly went out and exposed somebody else and, and they got it from me, if you can make, make that establishment, I think it would be legitimate to punish me. Mm. Um, but simply saying, well, you might cause somebody to get sick, then that's a little bit more problematic because anytime I go out the door, I might hurt somebody. You know, uh, we could we could make ourselves 100% safe if we locked ourselves in our house and then wrap plastic bubble around us. Nobody wants to live like that. You know, um, you look at something like automobiles. We could, you know, automobiles kill thousands and thousands of people every year. We could eliminate all of those deaths if we ban cars but at what cost? So we have to consider those cost benefit, uh, like I said before. Mm -hmm. But again, all of these things we have to kind of wrestle with and, and with any political philosophy, when you get to the margins, there are difficult things that sometimes we just have to say, I'm not sure how we handle that. The thing that I came to though as a Christian is that ultimately one thing won't fail and that's love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. The gospel will not fail. Political philosophies will fail, society will fail, uh, you know, any man-made principle of ethics will fail. Jesus Christ will not fail. And, you know, I don't want to get preachy on your podcast, but um, to me, that's that's really kind of where I've had to had to settle in and evaluate all of my actions based on that golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. How are my actions going to impact the people around me? I don't need somebody with a bullhorn yelling at me, telling me, you know, not to do these things. I don't need somebody with a gun, certainly, you know, telling me you must do these things. I want to live according to my conscience and my conscience is love others. Right. And, and if we all strove for that in our own lives, then a lot of these problems would disappear because it would become less about my own rights and my own whatever. And it would be more about taking care of other people. Right. And, and so, you know, that, that's kind of the overall message. And, and even if you're not a believer, 
Um, I still think that most people would recognize the golden rule as being uh, you know, a pretty good ethic for life. Treat others as you want to be treated. And, and that goes to the, uh, the libertarian principle of non-aggression. Um, you know, don't hit people, don't take their stuff. It's a pretty good way to live our lives. And again, it's not, you know, it's not 100%. There are difficult scenarios that will play out. You know, what about the roads? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think certainly if, if we could all live our lives closer to that ethic, then we would go a long way towards uh, having a better world, a, a more peaceful and prosperous world, which is, I think, what we all ultimately want. Right. And I, I definitely think that that's something that we could all take from, especially when we, we see all these people um, blaming others for walking outside, you know, that there's this meme of the Karens that walk outside and are, right. are snitching on people. And I think, I think some, a lesson I actually learned from another guest I had on my podcast, uh, Don Corcoran, he's my cousin, he's, uh, he's actually um, suffering from cancer right now. And oh, wow. what, what, what he found is that in this time, um, he's living, he, he's living, um, the life that the government's recommending us to live right now. Sure. You know? He's been doing this for 12 months. Um, mm -hmm. and he tells me he doesn't need someone to tell him to do that. And he doesn't right. need, he doesn't need, um, the government to tell other people to do that, to protect him. But what he did say is that he sees a lot of people because um, he's religious too, he sees a lot of people projecting their anger on other people for like, you know, when they're confronted from this vulnerable situation and when um, death seems more possible than it ever has before, before you know, people start right. to project and blame people. But if, sure. if, if, we, if we started to see other people as our neighbors and saw them as ourselves, you know, we, we would be able to, recognize that the people driving on the street maybe maybe they're going to visit someone like their little kid that they've been babysitting for weeks you right. know there's people don't really treat other people as humans and i think i think that that is a perfect lesson and i'm glad that you brought it up yeah it reminds me of a facebook post a friend of mine made her name's Ovens, and uh just I, I read this and I was like, yes, this is it. You know, she was talking about this whole idea of, uh, you know, what do you do if somebody if, if you see your neighbor and they're not social distancing right and you're angry about it? Well, first thing not to do is don't call the police. And she made the point is that you should never call the police unless you're willing for somebody to die. Right. Because that's ultimately what the police bring to the table. They bring the ability and the authority to use lethal force. Mm -hmm. So. You know, maybe not the best way to address the situation, but she said, you know, why not talk to that person? Because you don't know why they're doing what they're doing. So let's say you see a business and, and they're open and you think they're non-essential and they should be closed up. Instead of calling the cops, call them up. Say, hey, you know, I noticed you guys are open. Why, why are you open? What What's the reasoning that you have for this? They may have a perfectly good reason. And then you may be able to step in and give them some ideas of how they could continue operating and, and maybe more safe in, in terms of social distancing. Mm -hmm. Talk to each other. Engage with your neighbor instead of just calling the cops on them. You know, for goodness sake, find out what's going on with people and work together and, and, and act like a society instead of a bunch of people pitted against each other. And I, I read that post and I was like, that 
that is the kind of world that I want to live in where my neighbor just doesn't assume that I'm doing the wrong thing, that they come and talk to me because maybe I don't even realize that I'm causing harm. You know, mm-hmm. um, don't assume that I know what I'm doing. Don't assume that you know what I'm doing. Talk to each other, have relationships with each other and, and stop trying to use the bully uh, Billy Club of the state to beat your neighbor into submission. Again, that's not the kind of world we want to live in. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. It goes back to the to the uh, the great commandment again. So yeah, absolutely. You know, um, if if we can have consideration for each other, then that actually eliminates the state from the uh, equation. We don't need somebody with a uh, a bullhorn and a Billy Club uh, right. because we can handle our stuff. By- ourselves yeah and what i what i do find interesting just to talk more about um the voluntarist perspective is you know we private businesses have we we've been seeing a lot of people like be extremely generous during this time but we also what what private business and private property allows is people to voluntarily disassociate from people you know if if you are sick um you can shut down if if you think that other people are sick you cannot allow them to come in you know i saw a sign at target that said and even though this might not align with the love your neighbor um ideal i saw i saw a poster on target that said if you if you've been sick we cannot allow you into the store and that that's what private property allows you to do um (laughs) government uses force right so. And the beauty of it is that in a private pro- property world, you're going to have different solutions for the same problem. So, uh, you know, one one store may have an outright ban and nobody that's been sick can go there. And then another store may say, you know, I don't want to go that far. But if you're going to come in here, then you're going to wear a mask and uh, we're going to disinfect your hands before you walk. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we can handle these things. And mm-hmm. It's much better to have a, a decentralized system. Um, you know, I, even a decentralized government system is better than a one-size-fits-all. You know, I have all the authority, Donald Trump kind of system. But right. in a private property system, uh, you'll you'll have all kinds of different solutions and different options. And I guarantee you that somebody somewhere is going to let uh, let that person in the store on 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 their terms. You right. know, you may end up with the store that's for all all only for sick people. You know, this is the sick people store. <laughs> yeah. um, who knows? what kind of solutions you could come up with in a, in a private property situation in a free market world. Uh, but when you have government, it ends up as one size fits all. You will do this. And, you know, a lot of times this isn't the best thing to do. Uh, and a lot of times this is the worst thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it's imposed on all of us from, from on high. So, yeah, I, I agree with you completely that, uh, living in a, you know, that's, that's what ultimately what I would like to live in, in in a private property world. Um, and, and I think a lot of these problems would sort themselves out in that environment, including how do you deal with people who harm others? Because you would have a private court system that would be more akin to common law where law evolves out of real life experience as opposed to, you know, some politician somewhere writing down some edict on a piece of paper. So, (laughs) Well, yeah. So I think I think we're done here. If you want to just tell people where they can find you and and everything, we can let you go. All right. There's a couple of places I would love for people to check out. Check out tenthamendmentcenter.com. That's where uh, you know most of my work is in terms of political work. 
our goal at the Tenth Amendment Center is constitutional government, which is decentralized government with the federal government having uh, very little authority and most of the authority being left to the states and the people as the Tenth Amendment set up. Uh, so you can check that out at TenthAmendmentCenter.com. And then if you're interested in the economic and investing part of it, uh, I'm the managing editor for the Shift Gold website. Uh, Shift Gold is a gold company. We sell physical gold, so bars and coins, also silver and platinum. Uh, you can check that out at shiftgold.com slash news. And then uh, for the more spiritual take on it, godarchy.org, which is where I have uh, my Godarchy podcast and, and deal more with the uh, the intersection of Christianity and then the ideas of voluntarism and libertarian anarchism. Uh, that's godarchy.org. So those are the, the places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike. It was nice talking to you. Thanks for having me as always, man. Yeah. See ya. All right. Some